Okay, how is everyone doing? Welcome back to another episode of The Banker Next Door. So this is the Lords of Easy Money series, and this is part two. So I'm going to kind of jump right into where we left off after part one. So we, we were talking about hawks and doves and the Fed and Andrew Mellon, who was considered a melanist. So now we're going to get into um, basically Honig's thoughts on the allocative effect. So uh, so a review of Honig's comments during the 2010 FOMC meetings. Um, Honig, for instance, liked to talk a lot about something that he called the allocative effect of keeping interest rates at the zero bound. So the allocative effect wasn't something that people debated at the barbershop, but it was something that affected everyone. Honig was talking about the allocation of money and the ways in which the Fed shifted money from one part of the economy to another. He was pointing out that the Fed's policies did a lot more than just affect overall economic growth. The Fed's policies shifted money between the rich and the poor, and they encouraged or discouraged things like Wall Street speculation that could lead to ruinous financial crashes. This whole way of talking about the Fed undermined the very construct of hawks versus doves. He was pointing to the fact that the Fed could cause meltdowns that had nothing to do with the price inflation. So in other words, he's talking about picking winners and losers in the economy, creating a divide between the rich and poor, and the fact that the Fed could inadvertently create other catastrophes or other crashes that had literally nothing to do with inflation based on their policies of you know the zero interest rate policy and heavy quantitative easing. So... When Honig talked about allocative effects, he was describing how 0% interest rates created winners and losers. When interest rates hit zero and money becomes cheap, it pushes banks to make riskier loans. That's because the banks can't earn a profit by saving money as they might be able to do in a world where interest rates are higher, like it's say 4%, like kind of like where they are right now. Um, in a 4% world, a bank can earn a decent return by stashing its money in ultra-safe investments like government treasury bonds, which would pay the bank 4% for the loan. So what are treasury bonds paying at right now? Well, if you're on the short end of the curve, you know, a six-month or a nine-month, they're, they're paying over 5%. Um, if you get out to the two-year, uh, you're now probably at 4.6-something, and the 10-year, I think, is hovering around like 42 something in that neighborhood right now, today, I think what I, what I looked at last week. So um, so again, the point being, you kind of gotten back to a more normal environment in the last few, just the last few years, but let's, but let's continue on here. So um, in a 0% world, things are different. A bank earns much closer to nothing for stashing its money in an ultra safe bond. This pushes the bank to search for earnings out there in the risky wilderness. A riskier loan might pay a higher interest rate or a higher yield, as the bankers call it. When banks start hunting for yield, they're moving their cash further out on the yield curve, as they say, into the riskier investments. Life at the zero bound pushes banks way down the yield curve. What does a bank have to lose? A risky bet beats nothing. And this isn't just a side effect of keeping rates at zero. That's the whole point, Honig explained. Many years later, the point was to get people willing to take greater risk to get the economy started again, but it also allocates resources. It allocates where the money goes. 
Honig was worried about what would happen when the Fed pushed all that money from safe investments out into risky investments, i.e. the market. When cash is pushed out into the yield curve, it leads to the second big problem that Honig warned about in 2010, something called an asset bubble. The housing market that collapsed in 2008 was an asset bubble. The dot-com stock market crash of 2000 was the bursting of an asset bubble. When an asset bubble crashes, the general public tends to blame the people at the scene of the disaster, who were inevitably greedy Wall Street types. It was the short-sighted stockbrokers who bid up the stock market, or the dishonest mortgage lenders who fueled the housing boom. But Honig had sat on the FOMC during both of these asset bubbles, and the following crashes, and he'd seen firsthand the Fed's vital role in creating them. Wait, he'd seen firsthand the Fed's vital role in creating them. <laughs> we rewind that. <laughs> he'd seen firsthand the Fed's vital role in creating them. Oh, so you mean it wasn't just greedy Wall Street people or dishonest mortgage brokers. It was actually the Fed that had a hand in creating some of these disasters. That's very interesting. Okay, so let's let's continue. The central bank hadn't just rescued the economy from the crash of 2008. The Fed bore a great deal of responsibility for it. The financial and economic shocks we've experienced did not just come out of nowhere, Honig said. They followed years of low interest rates, high and increasing leverage, and overly lax financial supervision as prescribed by both the Democratic and Republic administrations. Bingo. The continued use of zero interest rate will only add the risk to the longer run outlook, he said. So um, I want to stop for a second because I want to describe to everybody. I want to I key in on something here. So he talks about the banks wanting to go after riskier yielding loans. Okay, And that is true. Uh, however, I, I think a better example of that would be a hedge fund. So in other words, what the Fed did by reducing rates to zero and forcing people to take riskier bets. In other words, you you when you put rates to zero, that means that people cannot. If, I, if I'm just a, if I'm an, an 80 year old retiree and I'm a saver and I just want to go into the bank and I don't want to risk my money in the stock market, I just want to put my money into a bank and earn a decent return on a CD and live off of that at zero percent interest rate. You can't do that. Um, you know, you can't you you, you put. $400,000 in the bank and it's making 0.15%, you, you can't earn anything off of that. You, so you're forced to take your money and then put it back into the stock market, hoping to make a better return, a better gain on that. So you, you're you punishing savers, you're punishing retirees, people who live on fixed incomes. The second thing is, let's, let's consider a hedge fund. You're taking, and again, we're talking about the risk-free rate. In other words, I could invest in a treasury bond at 4% or 5%, or I could go into a CD and I could get a 5% CD in the bank. That is zero risk. Uh, those investments carry zero risk. I can just go and put my money in there and I can make a set 4 or 5% return and I take no risk. So now, if I say I'm a hedge fund and I've got a billion dollars to invest, um, and somebody comes into me now that I got a condo developer in Miami that goes, hey, I really want you to put $150 million into this, this awesome condo development that I've got down in Miami. Don't you know, don't you want to invest that? You know, or 
uh, a company from Silicon Valley comes in and says, hey, uh, we're a unicorn and we got a billion dollar valuation and we're going to go public and you're, we're going to we're going to really pump it up. So I need you to invest one hundred million dollars in my in my startup unicorn business from Silicon Valley. Right. And so you've got all these different options on the table. Uh, maybe another company comes in and says, hey, we're XYZ company. We want to do a merger with this company. We're going to go buy them out. And we'd really like if you would make us a, a loan to like to really leverage up that transaction so we can make the most of the return on it. So, so now as the hedge fund manager, you're posed with all of these different projects that all have different levels of risk. However, all of them have the same thing in common. If there is a risk-free rate, in other words, say 5% is the risk-free rate in the market, those projects better be coming to you with projections showing a way better return than 5%. They better be showing a 15, a 20% rate of return. Otherwise, you're not going to bother investing in them because you're going to say, hey, I could take my billion dollars and just go put it in the bank and make 5%. What do I need to invest in your project for? You know? And, and that's what that's what this is saying. Basically, it, when you go to zero interest rates, anything is better than zero. So if I come in with a project and say, oh, I can I can I'll give you seven percent, eight percent return on that project. You're going to jump at it and say, hey, that's fantastic. Let's do it. Because anything again, seven percent is better than zero. But if I can make five percent and you come in and say, oh, hey, I, I, can, I can make you seven or eight or nine percent return on this, you're going to say. No, because it's it's not enough. It's not enough to support that risk that you're taking on there. So anyway, okay. So let's get back to so let's now we're going to talk about the Mariner Eccles building. Um, so um, and I want to point this out because this this the, describing the Fed's building is important to understanding kind of the the personality or the psychology, if you will, of the of the Fed. So Honig's ride continued south toward the Fed headquarters, which were located in the Mariner Eschel's building. The Eschel's building was down on the quiet side of the mall, near the opposite end from the Capitol Dome. The decor inside the Eschel's is what you'd get if a big bank in a museum had a child. <laughs> thought that was kind of funny. The boardroom was the most famous feature of the Eschel's building, and the most famous feature of the boardroom was the enormous ovoid Ovoid, ovoid, ovoid table at its center, a gleaming slat of polished wood that seemed to go on forever. Honig first joined this table as a young voting member of the FOMC when the legendary Alan Greenspan presided as chairman of the Fed. But Honig's experience at the central bank went back even further than that. He had worked at the Fed under leadership of five chairmen, starting with Arthur Burns back in the 1970s and including the legendary tenure of Paul Volcker, who raised interest rates into the double digits in the early 1980s to beat inflation, causing a brutal recession in the bargain. There had never been anything like a peaceful, stable period at the Fed. Things were always changing and one crisis always led to another. But there had also never been a period quite like the one under Greenspan's successor, Ben Bernanke, who changed everything. That's a, that is a profoundly powerful statement right there. There had never been anything like a peaceful, stable period at the Fed. But I was always told that the Fed's entire mission 
was to bring stability to the economy, was to keep inflation low, keep unemployment low, and make sure that the, the economy hummed along with no issues and no problems. And yet, what do we see here? Over a hundred year plus period of time at the Fed, there has hardly ever been anything like a peaceful period. Um, if people will recall, when the Fed was first created back in 2013, the whole idea was that, that we had gone through boom and bust periods. We had the panic of, of 1907, and the Fed was going to stop all that. They were going to stop all these panics. They were going to stop all these boom and bust cycles. They were going to stop all that. They were going to bring nothing but riches and peace and prosperity to everyone. Uh, yet the track record doesn't appear to have brought that forward. It appears to have been completely the opposite of that. Um, you know, things were always changing from one crisis to another, but there was also never been a period quite like the one after Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, who changed everything. So Ben Bernanke and Bernankeism. Let's get it. So when Ben Bernanke published a memoir in 2015, he entitled it The Courage to Act. This captured the theory of Bernankeism. It held that monetary intervention is necessary, courageous, even noble. But the crash of 2008 turned Bernanke into a global celebrity, along with the Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, and the New York Federal Reserve Bank President, Timothy Geithner. They were the trio at the center of things, bailing out the giant insurance conglomerate AIG, letting Lehman Brothers fail, pushing for a 700 billion bank bailout. Bernanke became the face of the American economic rescue effort. If Bernanke was bold during the crisis, it was partly because the Fed had moved too slowly before the crash when it let the housing bubble inflate, inf infect the financial system and explode. In 2007, when mortgage borrowers started defaulting in large numbers, Bernanke said during an industry conference that the problems in subprime mortgages weren't that dangerous. We believe the effect of the troubles in the subprime sector on the broader housing market will likely be limited, Bernanke said. We do not expect significant spillover from the subprime market to the rest of the economy or the financial system. Hmm. Interesting. So... In that statement there, you begin to see one of the things that, that plays out time and time again, and that is the people at the Fed, they see a crisis coming and they always downplay it. They always downplay as if nothing's going to happen, everything's fine here, nothing to talk about, nothing to see. It's kind of like Janet Yellen coming out with the transitory inflation statement. Oh, hey, uh, inflation's just transitory. I mean, she knew perfectly well that that was a lie and that that was a bogus comment, but she said it anyway. And just, just like here, just like Bernanke was, was probably sweating bullets at the time when he gave that interview. Oh, no, no, no. The effects of the troubles in the subprime sector on the broader housing market, they're, they're going to be limited. It's not going to be a problem. It's not going to spill over. So now, and here's a little bit of history on Bernanke. So as an academic, Bernanke was focused on the Great Depression and had written extensively about ways in which a new depression might be averted. One of his central ideas was that the Fed hadn't acted boldly enough back in the 1930s. The central bank had actually worsened the depression by tightening the money supply. The solution, Bernanke believed, was to be as aggressive as possible after a crash. He had spent many years thinking of new ways that the Fed could boost economic growth even after pushing interest rates to zero. However, some of Bernanke's ideas were absolutely outlandish. 
He discussed something called a helicopter drop of money in which the U.S. government would give people a huge tax cut by simply selling all of its debt to the Fed, which would print the money to buy it. Now, this is where he developed the nickname Helicopter Ben for dropping for his helicopter drops of quantitative easing and money upon the economy. So the stagnant economy of 2010 encouraged such experiments. Economists knew that it would take years to recover from the banking crisis, but the reality of high unemployment so long after the crash was still shocking. Uh, just so people note, after the crash in 1929, it basically took 20 years for the value of real estate to come back to where it was before the crash. And it, it had taken, it wasn't until World War II that and after World War II that that we basically got the economy humming again. It 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 been things had been bad for a, a long time. Um, the unemployment rate was still above nine percent, and economic growth remained weak. There was a crisis gathering storm in Europe, thanks to deeply indebted nations like Greece and Spain. These problems, if left unaddressed, would create a cascading effect across the world. The American stock market started to sink again during the spring of 2010, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average falling about 1,000 points, or 9%, between May and June. At first, Bernanke was only pushing to keep interest rates at zero, but Honig started dissenting. I think of it more as planting the seeds of a briar patch that we will have to deal with not in a year from now, but three or four years from now, as we have in the past. So I very much oppose this policy, he had stated. So in August, Bernanke began a public campaign to initiate his greatest innovation and one of the greatest experiments in the Fed's history. This was the program called Quantitative Easing. The program had been used on a large scale once before during the financial crash, but it crashed, but it had never been used in the way that Bernanke believed it should be used in late 2010 as an economic stimulus plan to be employed outside a crisis. Every summer, the Kansas City Fed had held a symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, a gathering of global central bankers and economists that was the closest thing the monetary pol policy had to the Academy Awards. It was a place for red carpet strolls and moments captured by news photographers. The Fed chairman's speech was always a major event, and in 2010, Bernanke did not disappoint. He announced the program that would help the Fed push interest rates below zero and stimulate the economy when no one else was willing to do so. But the members of the FOMC knew otherwise because they knew how the plan would work and what it was intended to do. The Fed had done quantitative easing once before during the heat of the 2008 financial crisis. It was an emergency effort, an extraordinary thing for an extraordinary moment. The Fed directly bought mortgage debt to stabilize the mortgage market. Now, Bernanke was suggesting that the Fed turn quantitative easing for the first time into a normal operating tool to manage the economy. The basic mechanics and goals of quantitative easing are actually pretty simple. It was a plan to inject trillions of newly created dollars into the banking system at a moment when the banks had almost no incentive to save the money. The Fed would do this by using one of the most powerful tools it already had at its disposal, a very large group of financial traders in New York who were already buying and selling assets from the select group of 24 prime financial firms that were known as primary dealers. The primary dealers have special bank vaults at the Fed called reserve accounts. To execute quantitative easing, a trader at the New York Fed would call up one of the primary dealers like JP Morgan Chase and offer to buy $8 billion worth of treasury bonds from the bank. 
JP Morgan would sell the treasury bonds to the Fed trader. Then the Fed trader would hit a few keys and tell the mortgage banker to look inside their reserve account. Voila. The Fed had instantly created $8 billion out of thin air in the reserve account to complete the purchase. Morgan would, Morgan could, in turn, use this money to buy assets in the wider marketplace. This is how the Fed creates money. It buys things from the primary dealers, and it does so by simply creating money inside their reserve accounts. Bernanke planned to do such transactions over and over again until the Fed had purchased $600 billion worth of assets. Before the crisis, it would have taken about 60 years to add that many dollars to the monetary base. There was one more thing about quantitative easing that made it so powerful. Bernanke was planning to buy long-term government debt like 10-year treasury bonds. This was a bigger deal than it sounds. The Fed had always bought the short-term debt because its job was to control short-term interest rates. But the central bank was now targeting long-term debt for strategic reason. Long-term debt was Wall Street's equivalent of a savings account. It was the safe place where investors tried up, tied up their money to earn a dependable return. With quantitative easing, the Fed would take the savings account away. It would reduce the supply of 10-year treasury bills that were available. All the money that the Fed was creating would now be under the, a great deal of pressure because it could no longer find a safe home in a 10-year treasury. All the new cash would be pushed out on the yield curve, out there into the risky investments. The theory was that banks would now be forced to lend money, whether they wanted to or not. Quantitative easing would flood the system with money at the very moment that it limited the refuge where that money might be safely stored. If economic growth was weak and fragile during 2010, that quantitative easing would shower the landscape with more money and cheaper loans and easy credit, enticing banks to fund new businesses that they might not have funded before. So there is a there is a lot to take in there in that in this. So we're talking about how quantitative easing works. We're talking about the mechanism by which it does it. And we're talking about how the Fed was going to buy the they're going out on the yield curve. So they're they're taking away the bank's savings account as they put it. So they're buying long on the yield curve. They want to they want to force down the long-term rates. And they want to do this because the interest rates at short term are zero. So they're forcing banks to lend money. They're forcing banks to go out there, whether the banks want to lend this money or not, they're going to be forced to because they got no other refuge. They, they have this 0% interest rate. They can't just go buy a treasury bond. They can't go out long on bonds. Their only refuge is to basically go short in the market and lend start lending to people and lending at whatever rates they can, 3%, 4%, you know, whatever they can lend that money out at, that's what they're going to do. And they're going to lend that money. And that's basically going to how they're going to try to make money and the yield. And the idea was that this will get the economy going again. This will get people borrowing money. And then they'll put that money back into their business. They'll invest the money into their business. And then they'll go hire people and they'll grow and things will, things will get going again. That's the, that was the, the general, consensus there, the general thinking. But did it actually turn out that way? That's and we'll see that more as we get into um, further chapters. So now now we're getting into Honig's comments at the September 20 meeting. So this is a month before November. Remember, we started in November. Now we're at September. So during the FOMC meeting in September, Honig offered his most condensed, straightforward critique of what the Fed was doing. He pointed out that the deep malaise 
and the American economic life wasn't caused by a lack of lending from banks. The banks already had plenty of money to lend. The real problem lay outside the banking system in the real economy where the deep problems were festering, problems that the Fed had no power to fix. Keeping interest rates at zero and then pumping $600 billion of new money into the banking system, money that had nowhere to go but out into risky loans or financial speculation, wasn't going to help solve the fundamental dysfunctions of the American economy. I am not arguing for high interest rates at all. I never have been. I am arguing for getting off of zero, getting away from thinking that if we only added another trillion dollars of high-powered money, everything would be okay. It won't, Honig said. He warned that another round of quantitative easing would push the Fed into a new regime that wouldn't easily be ended. At this point, the crisis should have taught us that we need to increase our emphasis on longer run macroeconomic and financial stability and not just on inflation goals. We have allocative effects, and I think we should be very, very mindful of that. He was right. He was absolutely right. And we're seeing it now. The effects of this are still playing out. And we can't get out of this. We're basically the Fed has basically put themselves into a situation they literally cannot get out of. When Bernanke responded to Honig later in the meeting, he pointed out that the Fed faced risks if it didn't intervene. This is very, very difficult, he said. We don't have good options. It feels safer not to do anything. But then on the other side, we have an economy which is underperforming very severely. We have very high unemployment, so there's no safe option. Whatever we do, we're going to have to make our best judgment and hope for the best. Months earlier in May, Honing had given an interview to the Wall Street Journal in which he directly criticized the 0% interest rate policy, explicitly warning that it might stoke asset bubbles. Now, during a public speech, Honing said that quantitative easing was akin to making a deal with the devil. This is not the polite language usually employed by FOMC members. This was a public condemnation. These comments irritated Ben Bernanke, perhaps even more than Honig's dissenting votes had irritated him. When the Fed gathered to vote on the quantitative easing plan in November, the two-day meeting began on an unpleasant note. Bernanke opened the meeting with something of a scolding for the gathering FOMC members. He said, that there had been too many leaks of information about their meetings and just as worrisome, some Fed officials seemed to feel increasingly free to express their opinions on important policy matters during their public speeches. It was hard not to see this complaint as directly directed squarely at Tom Honig. Bernanke said that airing such very strong, very inflexible positions undermined the FOMC's credibility. Janet Yellen agreed. I personally see them as damaging our credibility and our reputation at a time when the institution is under enormous scrutiny and we can ill afford it, she said. Consensus was important. Presenting a unified front to the outside world was important. Vocal dissent was disloyalty. That was the message on November 2nd, the first day of the meeting. So. Honig is, Honig is very public now. He's coming out. He's very public. He's basically saying, this is not right. We can't do this. We got to stop. We got to stop this. However, Bernanke fires back and basically says, we can't sit here and do nothing. And then after Honig goes out and makes public his comments, he basically chastises him in a very political way of basically pointing it out to everybody but not pointing it necessarily directly at him with his words, more so his tone, 
and basically saying that like you know dissent is not going to be tolerated here you know you better you better not dissent or you're going to be you're going to be out the door now we get to here's the thing the fed's own research did not support the suggested actions and the fed governors were nowhere near as united as the people were led to believe in public so the fed's own research on quantitative easing was surprisingly discouraging if the Fed pumped $600 billion into the banking system, it was expected to cut the unemployment rate by just 0.03%. While that wasn't much, it was something. The plan could create 750,000 new jobs by the end of 2012, a small change to the unemployment rate, but a big deal to those 750,000 people. But the point there is that the $600 billion, it really wasn't going to do anything. It wasn't going to do very much. You had to get a lot more money. And that's exactly what Bernanke wanted to do. He wanted to just pump trillions of dollars in there. So, but here's the, the it wasn't really a unified front though. So Jeff Lacker, president of the Richmond Fed, said the justification for quantitative easing were thin and the risks were large and uncertain. Please count me in the nervous camp, Lacker said. He warned that enacting the plan now, when there was no economic crisis at hand, could commit the Fed to near permanent intervention as long as the unemployment rate was elevated. Huh. Enacting the plan now where there was no economic crisis at hand would commit the Fed to near permanent intervention as long as the unemployment was elevated. As a result, people are likely to expect increasing monetary stimulus as long as the level of the employment rate is disappointing, and that's likely to be true for a long time long time. And that is exactly what we have seen over the last 15 years. Every time something happens, the Fed rushes in and immediately pumps the, pumps the economy full of trillions of dollars to try to bail people out. But not just any people. Keep that, keep that in mind. Not just any people. Charles Plazer, the Philadelphia Fed president, was more blunt. I do not support another round of asset purchases at this time, he said. The economy has been through a soft patch this summer, but it appears to be emerging from it. Plauser suggested that the Fed might be misleading the public about its plans, presenting a false sense of certainty about its path forward and the risks associated with it. I think it would be a mistake to convey to the public that we know how to fine tune an asset purchase program to achieve our objectives when, in fact, we don't. He said, again, given these very small anticipated benefits, we should be even more focused on the downside risks of this program. Fisher, the Dallas Fed president, said he was deeply concerned about the plan. It grows and grows and may be impossible to trim off once it takes root, Fisher echoed Honing's warnings that the plan would primarily benefit big banks and financial speculators while punishing people who save their money for retirement. I see considerable risk in conducting policy with the consequences of transferring income from the poor, those most dependent on fixed income and the saver to the rich, he said. It was widely believed that it would be disastrous if three or four members of the FOMC voted against any given plan. This level of dissent would telegraph to the world that the Fed was divided, even uncertain, and maybe liable to reverse course. 
The committee had 12 seats, but a majority of those members were not regional bank presidents. Seven of the FOMC seats belonged to members of the Fed's Board of Governors, who oversaw the bank from their offices at the Eshels Building in Washington. The governors worked full-time there in offices that were just down the hall from the boardroom. Because there were 12 regional bank presidents, but only five seats available to them on the FOMC, the bank presidents rotated as voting members. In 2010, Plauser, Lacker, and Fisher were not voting members of the FOMC. They could attend the meetings and speak their mind, but they could not affect the final vote tally. One member of the Board of Governors named Kevin Warsh was seriously opposed to quantitative easing. Warsh had a vote, and he had criticized quantitative easing since the day it was introduced. He was a former investment banker, only 40 years old, with thick, dark hair and a boyish face. Because he had spent his life in the financial markets rather than academia, Warsh seemed to appreciate just how distortive Bernanke's plan could be. Warsh was still not convinced, but during a second meeting on October 26, Warsh agreed to side with Bernanke as a compromise Warsh would publish an op-ed that expressed his reservations about quantitative easing, but only after he voted for it. I strongly disagree with the course being charted here today, Honig said. We may see some short-run improvement, but not long-run. There will be, I'm sure, in the end, a lot of givebacks. Experience tells us that. This course sows the seeds of instability, in my opinion. Honig warned that the Fed might be laying the groundwork for another financial crisis, even if the timing and cause of that crisis could not be predicted. Um, again, so you you know you had these three governors that dissented, but they were not in the voting group at that time, so they could not lay a vote. So they you know so they their opinions were not, and they certainly didn't make their opinions public. So Bernanke didn't have to worry about the three of them. The one guy, Warsh, he did have to worry about. He basically got this guy to go along and play ball and then issue uh, a dissenting opinion after the vote was over. So let's move on here to the end. So Honig's final dissent. In the final dissent, Honig narrowed his argument to three points. The first risk, he pointed out, was that the Fed would find it extremely difficult to end a quantitative easing program once it began, which they did. It would be the financial equivalent of a military quagmire. Once the money printing began, where would it stop? When unemployment had been pushed down to 9% or 8% or lower, we will chase an open-ended commitment, I think, he said. The Federal Reserve doesn't have a good tracker to withdrawing policy accommodation in a timely manner, no matter how much we say we will. The second risk was that the Fed might compromise its independence because it would be purchasing so much government debt. The explicit goal was to lower long-term interest rates on that debt. This could put the Fed in a bind. If the Fed pulled back on quantitative easing, it might cause interest rates to rise. That, in turn, would put more pressure on the Fed to keep buying to keep the price of government borrowing artificially low. And finally, Honig said the program could unanchor inflation expectations. This was different than saying it would cause inflation. He was warning that companies and financial speculators would start anticipating higher inflation in the future thanks to the inflow of new money, and they would start to invest accordingly. This is partly what, was, what he was talking about when he used the word instability. Risky loans would drive up asset prices to uns unsustainable levels, and when those prices crashed, it would cause mass unemployment. In short, 
Once the Fed started this program, it would create so many distortions and side effects that it would almost certainly not be able to end the program without causing massive instability or even a crash. If we ease further or if we leave the accommodation there too long, we will overshoot. And that's not consistent with our long run mandates. So the time came to vote and it came to Honig. He votes respectfully no. After Honig, the votes were predictable. Yes, 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 yes. And the final tally was 11 to 1. When Bernanke wrote his memoir, he said, Honig's comments had irked me. However, in our final thoughts here, virtually all of the predictions Thomas Honig made about quantitative easing and 0% interest rates would come true over the next decade. Years later, he didn't say that he voted the way he voted because he was smart. He said he voted that way because of what he'd learned over more than 30 years working inside the Federal Reserve. Honig became a dissenter against the Fed because of what he learned inside the very institution. He had seen firsthand how much devastation the Fed could cause when it got things wrong. So that is the end of chapter one. And you can see we just we've gotten through two parts here and they have been incredibly powerful and yeah i think you get you got it you get a sense if you've if you've hung in here with me this long in this journey you get a sense of just how deep this book is and how it really goes into so many facets of what the fed does how they do it and again understanding this in the history understanding how the the legacy and the policies of bernanke yellen and now powell they are all linked together the, the three of them are linked together forever because they have carried out this policy over the last 15 years. They instituted ZERP and quantitative easing and kept it going. They kept all the bailouts going. They've turned it into the all bailout, all everything, all the time economy. Um, they have completely quashed any kind of dissenting view with the Fed. Nobody's allowed to dissent anymore. You can't dissent. You can't have another opinion. You can't break ranks with anybody else. They have instituted over, they have fully ingrained and kept going this entire culture at the Fed that has taken over since Bernanke took charge. And they're going to own that. They're going to own that. And their their legacy will be inter, intertwined together. Um, and I do believe that this period of the Fed will be looked back on when all said is and, and done as an absolutely utter catastrophe and an absolutely disastrous period for the Federal Reserve over this 15 year period of time. So I hope everybody comes back and I hope everyone will join me next time. We're going to get uh, we will go a little bit quicker through the next couple of chapters. It's not as it's not as detailed and in-depth as the first uh, kind of opening chapter here. But that was whew, what an opening chapter. Um, and like I said, we're going to methodically go through this. We're going to methodically go through every step of this. And, and if you weren't, if you weren't mad now, by the time we get to the end, woo boy, oh, you're going to be mad. You're going to be hot mad. Um, I can promise you that. So, but anyway, if you like this video, please make sure to give a big like, uh, make sure to, to share this video, make sure to subscribe. That always helps the channel. And I will be back again to talk to everybody real soon. We'll keep these episodes on the Lords of Easy Money going. And I will hope to see everybody again real soon here.